This is the Intego Mac Podcast. The voice of Mac security. For Thursday, May 6th, 2021. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include how to protect yourself from QR code switcheroos. Facebook and Instagram are pretty much begging to let them track you. And speaking of Facebook, wait till you hear about the Instagram ads you'll never see. Plus, this week saw more Apple security updates. We've got the story on the vulnerabilities patched. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm fine. Were you as surprised as I was to see some Apple security updates on Monday this week? I was, yeah. I mean, we just barely got updates last week. Well, we didn't just barely got updates last week. We got updates for everything last week. But this is a new security update for, let's see, iOS, watchOS, Big Sur. I didn't see if the same update was available for tvOS and for the HomePod. Yeah, they didn't mention tvOS. Um, this is something to do with WebKit. This is a WebKit vulnerability, or, or actually multiple WebKit vulnerabilities that are all uh, apparently somewhat related to each other. They were all reported by the same team of security researchers. And I've seen some reports that somewhat inaccurately, I think, state that there were two issues that were fixed. But if you look more closely at what was fixed, in iOS 14.5.1, you'll notice that there are two WebKit vulnerabilities if you're looking through Apple's documentation on what security issues were patched. They list two specific um, what are called CVE numbers, common vulnerabilities and exposures. These are numbers that identify or supposed to uniquely identify a particular vulnerability. And so there's two listed there. But if you also go over to the iOS 12.5.3 update, you'll see that they actually list four vulnerabilities. Now, I, I do have to say one of those was patched last week for iOS 14.5. We didn't get an iOS 12 update at all last week. And so they kind of saved one of those updates for this time. But there is a, a fourth one in here that is not listed in any of the other updates that Apple put out, at least not that I've noticed. And it has a unique CVE number. What that leads me to believe is that one of these vulnerabilities may be only affects older operating systems and it only affected iOS 12 and did not affect iOS 14 most likely. But at, at, there's at least three new vulnerabilities that have all been patched that are all related, all reported by the same team of security researchers. And what Apple says on all of these is Apple is aware of a report that this issue may have been actively exploited, as in in the wild. So that's why it's important why Apple decided to release all these updates on a Monday and why we recommend that you upgrade as soon as you can. Right. Usually updates are because they've discovered a vulnerability, which could be exploited, but it's a very different ballgame when they know that something is actually exploited. And when they say they've received reports, that means they're actually scurrying because this is more than just reports, I think. Yeah. If they've received reports, in other words, somebody has noticed that this is going on in the wild and is pushing Apple, hey, you might want to fix this because people are getting exploited right now. 
Yeah. So a number of people commented on the size of this update. It varied. Some people had a 2.8 gigabyte update and some had a 3.3 gigabyte, which is huge for a, a dot update. I'll link in the show notes to the Rob Observatory. It's a website by Rob Griffiths. He's a friend of mine, an app developer, and he created the Mac OS X Hints website back in, well, 20 years ago now. He's got a running full history of Mac OS release dates and sizes. And well, first of all, the Big Sur installer at more than 12 gigabytes is more than twice the size of previous installers. But this last update at 3.3 gigabytes is a lot. And it it kind of makes me worry about people not having the bandwidth to update things. Worth pointing out that on my iPhone, I think it was 145 megabytes to update. So there's clearly a different system involved in, in these minor updates for macOS and iOS. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things, by the way, that you can find out through this Rob Observatory page. There's a lot of fun statistics that he includes. He says, starting with the public beta and up through 11.3.1, which is the current version of Big Sur that just came out, there have been 149 macOS releases, both major and minor. So he's got a number of really interesting statistics and things like that on there as well. And it's very interesting. Kirk and I were just looking through the size of these updates over time and how back in 2000, when Apple released a patch, it was like four megabytes, 15 megabytes. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're up to 3.3 gigabytes for a security only update that just got released. Wow. Yeah. Well, one of the differences, of course, is retina images that we didn't have back then, but that doesn't explain everything. There's been some speculations that I've seen on Twitter and in forums about caches, but caches aren't downloaded. I think one explanation I saw is that when it's a security update now with the system integrity protection, is that Mm -hmm. what SIP stands for? Yeah. If one element is updated, a whole bunch of elements need to be updated. The only thing's changing is like a signature. It's not the actual software in these different elements. But they do need to be signed and they have to be, you can't just download the new signature. I think this might be it. I'm not sure. But basically, I'll link in the show notes to an article about turning on content caching. So if you are at home and if you've got multiple people using similar devices, you can save a lot of bandwidth by having one of your Macs, assuming you have multiples, caching content. Now, this works on iOS only for the exact same device, but on macOS, it's just macOS in general. Also, one of the reasons I think for the size of these updates increasing over time is that, remember, there have been a couple of points in the history of Mac OS X, as it used to be called, where it was originally available for one particular platform. Remember, it started out on PowerPC processors. So it started out with the G3, G4, and later G5 processors. Eventually, Apple had that transition to Intel. So there had to be universal binaries. In other words, uh, software that had to run on both the old platform and the new one. And so now, of course, we have universal binaries again because stuff's got to run on Intel and M1. Yeah. And unfortunately, you can't get the update for your device for your Mac, as you can on iOS. Yeah, this is something that I think Apple certainly has a lot of room for improvement there. And I I know that, you know, for a lot of people, bandwidth is not as much of a concern. Um, But, you know, some people, especially in rural areas, don't necessarily have fast, reliable internet access. And in some cases, they may even be using a a cellular network and and they may have caps. They may have limitations on how much they can download. 
So Apple, I think, needs to be a little bit more careful about the size of these updates. Not to mention, even in a corporate environment, even it, let's say um, you know you work in a company and they need to deploy a macOS update to, let's say, even 100 devices. That's going to take up a lot of local bandwidth, even on your on your network. Even if you've got the content cached and you're not having to pull all that down from the internet every time, deploying that out to every Mac is certainly going to take uh, quite a bit of bandwidth, too. So there's, there's a lot of waste, it feels like, with the size of these updates. Okay, on a totally different topic, we're going to talk about QR codes. And I think at some point in the past, we've mentioned that if you see a QR code someplace and you open the camera app on your iPhone and you scan it, it's going to open Safari. You have no idea of knowing what's in that QR code, no more than in a barcode on anything. And someone was arrested after replacing the official COVID-19 check-in signs with an anti-vaxxer QR code. Now, this took place in Australia. Here in the UK, stores and other venues can put up a QR code that's scanned by an app run by the National Health Service. And this app can tell you if someone else has been in that same location who would have scanned the QR code and who tested positive. Doesn't work very well. Not a lot of people use it, but you do see these QR codes in a number of locations. The reason that we wanted to bring this up is just to remind people that, hey, if you do see a QR code in a public place, be careful before you just assume that it's safe to scan. For, for example, one thing that QR codes can do is they can contain a web address. So if you scan a code, it'll actually take you to that website, but it does prompt you first. It puts up a little alert at the top of the screen and you can choose whether you want to go to it. And it just tells you the something.com or .gov or whatever the site may be. There have been, by the way, ways to exploit that in the past. And we don't know of any current ones, but there are ways in the past where the people have been able to disguise a URL. Um, I'll include a link in the show notes to um, a tweet that I put up several years ago where I tested this with a vulnerable version of iOS and found that um, it was possible to claim that you were linking uh, or, or that a QR code would take you to the IRS website. And uh, in my case, I actually made that QR code Rickroll you instead. Um, but anyway, be careful about QR codes in public because you never know. Uh, unless you're looking really closely at it, someone may have stuck a sticker over the top of that QR code and they may be trying to maliciously redirect you somewhere else. They might be trying to uh, to scam you. They may be trying to fish for credentials. Let's say that you go to a particular chain of drugstore and uh, you scan that QR code you know, it might take you to a phishing page. So you might think you're logging into your account for that drugstore and it might actually be giving your credentials to somebody else who runs that website. Okay. I kind of thought that we had reached a point where we wouldn't talk about Flash anymore. <laughs> so here we have Microsoft revealing the final plan to remove Flash Player in Windows 10. Yeah. And I just threw this in here because um, although we mostly talk about Apple topics, I thought this was relevant because I think we could definitely see Apple doing something like this before. They actually have a mechanism already in place that's been a part of uh, the XProtect framework that Apple includes with macOS for quite some time, where they list vulnerable, outdated versions of Flash Player and prevent those 
older vulnerable flash player plugins from being able to work on your current Mac. Now, at this point, Flash is essentially dead. Flash, if you have the latest version of Flash, it will actually disable itself. So this seems a little bit redundant um, to have Microsoft planning to actually remove Flash Player from Windows 10 uh, at a future point in time. But um, I, I think we could definitely see that happening on the Mac as well, where Apple might just decide to completely remove Flash Player, either uninstall it, delete the files, or maybe at the very least, the next time that you do a major upgrade to Mac OS X, maybe it will just move those Flash Player files to uh, a location where they're just going to be disabled and not be able to do anything anymore. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Facebook again. Why not? Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego. World-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts. Okay, we recently talked about the new feature in iOS 14.5 where you can turn off the ability for apps to ask if they can track you. I'll link to an article on the Intego Mac security blog about this. And in the past few days, Facebook and Instagram have started displaying, um, what would you call them? begging requests on your iPhone or iPad. I got one this morning on Instagram. It says, you're on iOS 14.5.1. This version of iOS requires us to ask permission to track activity received from apps and website you visit on this device to improve your ads. And they go on to give three reasons why this is a good thing. One, you can get ads that are more personalized. Two, you can help keep Instagram free of charge. And three, you can support businesses that rely on ads to reach their customers. Now, it's that second one that I find a bit surprising, that Facebook and Instagram would not continue to be free of charge. This is disingenuous at best. Yeah. So here's the thing. Social networks are never going to work if everyone who uses that social network has to pay for it. It's never worked in the past. It's never going to work in the future. You need to have a social network that at least for some people is available for everybody to use, or you will not get the quantities of people using that service. Are there any that have actually, I mean, I know there's a lot with, with different tiers. Slack has a free and a paid version, for example, Flickr yeah, free and paid. Right. Have there ever been any that are paid that have survived? Maybe LinkedIn is the closest. You can still use it for free, but anyone who really wants to use it seriously has to pay for a subscription, but that's for professionals. So it's a bit different. 
Yeah, it's just not something that I think is realistic. But there's so many social networks that are already out there that are free or at least have a free tier. Any social networks that I can think of that required you to pay, that required everybody to pay to be a part of that social network, you're not going to really find any success. If Instagram today decided we are now going to charge everybody, even if it's not too expensive, let's say it's a dollar a month subscription, I guarantee you they would have a mass exodus from from Instagram. Because there are, are plenty of other photo sharing sites. There are plenty of other social networks where you can share photos. So it just doesn't make sense. It would not work. But it's the network effect. The reason that Instagram is popular is because there are so many people there. Now, there are multiple Instagrams. There's photographers' Instagram. And that's what interests me as an amateur photographer. I follow other photographers. I think the majority of people use the sort of influencer Instagram where they follow celebrities. And then, of course, the most important Instagram is the cat photo Instagram, (laughs) which, you know, that's a, you just can't live without that. But I think you'd have different groups of people who would act differently. I think the influencer Instagram would not want to pay. As a photographer, I wouldn't mind paying a buck a month. And for cat photos and videos, I might even pay two bucks a month. (laughs) Sure. But not everybody would. And that's the thing is that you have so many users of these services that are only there because they can use that service for free that people who are producing content for services like this, the influencers and and people who get a lot of followers, they're going to find that their numbers are going to drop. So anyway, I bring this up just because Facebook which is which owns Instagram, decided to talk about it in this way, right? Facebook and Instagram are both putting up this type of screen that gives you this warning. They may think that they could charge because they've got these these big names, uh, this big, you know, brand recognition. Um, Facebook, okay. Now, I, I feel like Facebook maybe could survive that kind of a change where they switch to a subscription model. And here's the reason why, because there's a lot of people who are connected with people only through Facebook that they have no contact with and no way to contact them. Uh, Let's say, you know, people that they knew in high school or, you know, people who were acquaintances a long time ago, and then maybe they don't have their current phone number. So there are some things like that, that I could see that people would think that, yeah, okay, I feel it's worth paying the subscription to stay on Facebook. Instagram, uh, I don't think they could survive. And honestly, it would damage, even Facebook, I think it would damage them enough that you would have a pretty pretty big exodus from the service if they were to try to pull something like that. All of this to say, I don't really think that that's realistic, that they would go that direction. I think they're just trying to make this as an idle threat, sort of um, to try to encourage people to allow them to be tracked, right? Um, It it benefits Facebook a lot more than it benefits you, Uh, especially if you don't really, if you're not the type of person that normally clicks or taps on ads anyway. Well, that's see, that's the thing. Even if it was a dollar a month, that would be more than they get from most users yeah. from ad revenue, because the only revenue they get is when people tap on ads. Right, exactly. So um, nice try, Facebook, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm not buying it. 
This is the first app that I've seen that's asked to track me. I've left the setting on so I see which apps are going to ask. If you don't want to be bothered, turn the setting off. Again, I'll link to the article on the Mac Security blog where we talk about this. By the way, I did notice that Facebook finally updated their app recently. They went a, a long period of time, I think maybe a couple of months, where they hadn't updated their app. And it was sort of in rebellion to Apple's new policies and, and needing to put a, you know, Apple's uh, nutrition label, as they call it, privacy label, because basically Facebook and Instagram have to check all the boxes yeah. and say, oh, yeah, we're collecting everything. And they were sort of trying to get away with not having to do that for a while. And they finally broke down and said, OK, fine, we'll check all the stupid boxes. Everybody knows that they're getting tracked on Facebook anyway. I hope people know that. Honestly, I don't really think there's that many people who pay that close attention to these nutrition labels anyway. It's not going to hurt Facebook in any way. Okay, the secure messaging app Signal tried to place a number of ads on Instagram but was not allowed. And they have a blog post showing some of these ads. And the ads are simply just white text on a blue background with a little signal icon on the bottom. And the first one says, you got this ad because you're a newlywed Pilates instructor and you're cartoon crazy. This ad used your location to see you're in La Jolla. You're into parenting blogs and thinking about LGBTQ adoption. Now, they show a number of ads like this, and basically what they're showing is all the stuff that Facebook knows about you that advertisers use to target you. And they're pointing out that Signal doesn't know anything about you and doesn't use ads. Right. This is actually really amusing because it shows the the kind of information that Facebook is actually collecting about people. They're saying look, here, we can prove it. Like, all you have to do is to act like you're going to create an ad. And Facebook's not going to allow us to actually publish these ads. But because it really just shines the light on on how much data Facebook is collecting about you. I definitely recommend reading Signal's blog post. They've got um, several examples. And some of the stuff, um, you know, is fairly sensitive information. You may not necessarily want uh, your social network to know some of these types of things about you. The next one, by the way, ends in, you like to support sketch comedy, and this ad thinks you do drag. <laughs> oh, okay, wow. So, there, you know, there, there are a lot of things you may not necessarily want Facebook to know about you. Uh, and so this is very eye-opening uh, about the types of data that Facebook does actually collect about you. Okay, here's a story that is about security and politics. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's phone number was found to have been listed online at the bottom of a press release for over 15 years. Now... You can imagine that when he was a junior minister or whatever he was 15 years ago, it was normal to put a phone number there. But you would think that when he rose to, well, he was previously mayor of London and then now he's prime minister, that someone would have thought to check this. Now, this isn't necessarily a big deal, except imagine if a hostile state sent him one of those no-click exploits in a text message and owned his phone like what happened to Jeff Bezos. I'll link in the show notes to the podcast episode we did where we discussed the Bezos vulnerability. Yeah, that's exactly the concern that I would have is is that uh, any politician, um, you know, at really at any level, but especially if you're talking about in the U.S., like I would say state level um, or national level politics, these politicians are going to be a lot more likely to be targeted by 
threat actors, right? Uh, foreign intelligence agencies that might want to spy on what that person is talking about, what they're doing, where they're visiting, who they're communicating with. It's definitely something that is not out of the realm of possibility. It has happened to prominent people in the past. You're not going to be able to find Joe Biden's cell phone number on the internet, very likely, right? Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, there's a certain level of protection that that person needs to have in order to stay insulated from those kind of threats. Now, that's not to say that some foreign intelligence can't do some some reconnaissance and try to find out that phone number and then use it anyway, but you don't want to just make a phone number like this of a prominent person in business or politics available to the general public because there is way too much potential for abuse there. Okay, one more thing. Intel and AMD are scrambling for a fix to mitigate a new Spectre attack. Spectre is that thing that sort of affects processors at a very low level, which you can't really fix via software, right? Right. There are some mitigations that you can, in some cases, do. Sometimes this is something that the operating system vendor has to do. So, you know, Apple can sort of make macOS behave in a certain way so that some of these vulnerabilities may not really be an issue. But as researchers have continued to explore these speculative execution type vulnerabilities, they're finding a lot more ways that they can be exploited and a lot more varieties of attacks. We'll link to an Ars Technica piece that explains a little bit more about what's going on with this latest version of the speculative execution vulnerabilities. They say that researchers at the University of Virginia have found a new transient execution variant that breaks virtually all on-chip defenses that Intel and AMD have implemented to date. That would make good lyrics for an emo song. <laughs> so they're just focusing on Intel and AMD with this particular research. But this type of vulnerability can also potentially affect other processors, such as ARM-based processors like the M1. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that these types of attacks could also happen on other microprocessor architectures as well. It's just that Intel in particular is because it's in so many PCs is uh, the one that tends to get targeted more than any of the others. So Intel and AMD are being targeted here in this particular variant, but that's not to say that the new latest Macs are completely immune from these types of attacks as well. What I find interesting is what this speculative execution feature does. It allows processors to be faster because they're so fast that they can guess what the next instructions are going to be, and they can already start going down multiple pathways until they get those instructions. So they've got a head start on doing calculations. Right. That's the whole idea behind speculative execution is that it's a predictive model, right? So in, instead of um, just being reactive to whatever the user is choosing to do, Speculative execution makes it so that processors can be predictive and they can go down two paths at once. They can predict alternate realities that may happen in the future. And then so they start processing on two different paths 
And then whichever one you end up taking, they end up using that path that they've already begun the calculations on and then just drop the other one. And so the speculative execution attacks often are related to following that other branch that's supposed to have been just dropped. And um, and they're able to do some some scary sometimes things with uh, with these attacks. My real question is, are we also alive in the other path? <laughs> is this one of those multiverse things? Have these processes reached a singularity that puts us into a multidimensional multiverse situation? Um, you know, I, I, I would say... <laughs> Uh, although I, I know you're being funny here, it, it is really interesting to, to see that the, the technology is essentially doing that. I mean, w we don't have um, that we know of parallel realities where we exist multiple places in the time space continuum. But that's what um, you think. <laughs> that we know of, but our, our processors are kind of doing that. And that's kind of crazy to think about. Okay, that's enough for this week. Josh, until next week, stay secure and stay in one universe. <laughs> All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.